Please join me now in prayer. Speak to us, Lord, in the waiting, the watching, the hoping, the longing, the sorrow, the sighing, the rejoicing. Speak to us by your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. The New Testament reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. The word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. When I was uh, living in Las Vegas, I ended up having a lot of late night conversations, usually with others who worked in the DJ industry after a gig was over. One night I went to meet up with a friend who worked in the industry. By the time we met up though, he'd already had more than his share of, of drinks. In many ways, this was a normal night for him, and yet uh, something else came up. He knew that I was a Christian, he knew I was a pastor, and the, the mandatory challenge to Christianity had already come out of his mouth like every other meeting. But this night, the conversation took an unusual turn. He'd shared before how much it bothered him after a tragedy or a natural disaster when Christians would post online, thanking God for sparing those that weren't harmed. And this night, he finally shared why that was so hard from him. As he hunched over that table, looking down the neck of another beer bottle, he shared how as a child he'd been abused by a family member, one who had often watched him while his parents were away. He found out later that at least one family member had an idea what was going on, but nobody held the abuser accountable. And yet the thing that got to him most was not the perceived inaction of a mother or a father, but the perceived inaction of the heavenly father that his family talked about. The unspoken question finally came out. Where was God? If God was protecting those people that people are posting about online, why wasn't he protecting me? If God can be there in someone else's darkest hour, why not mine? This question was both honest and incredibly vulnerable. But for some, it's not a question about a past reality, but about a present reality. Now, not where was God then, but where is God now? When the doctor's expression isn't what we'd hope and the diagnosis is worse than we'd imagine. When the suffering goes on longer than we imagined. Or maybe this time of year when the sights and the smells and the sounds of the holidays, things that are supposed to bring us joy, instead just serve as painful reminders of those that are not there anymore or reminders of the brokenness in our own family. 
when our loneliness somehow feels more intense this time of year than the rest of the year, when we've just blown out the candles of another birthday cake and look around realizing that our life looks nothing like our childhood dreams, when the weight and the expectations of work or school to perform and to be somebody make us dread getting out of bed every morning, or when the things that we find in the news seem like just one more reminder that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. For one friend, that reminder came at the funeral of an 11-year-old niece. Since then, uh, they've decided that it's easier to believe that there is no God that, that there, than that there is one, but who would not prevent that from happening. Meanwhile, a pastor that I knew, someone who definitely believed in God, shared once in a sermon how two months after his wife's death, he still struggled to pray. One way or another, this is not a hypothetical question. This is a personal one. Whether we believe in God or whether we don't, what do we do with the seeming absence of God in the face of suffering? What do we do with a God who seems to hide in the darkness? That's the question before us at the beginning of the season that we call Advent. Advent is the, the four-week period before Christmas. It's not Christmas time, that, that comes later, but rather a season of waiting. It's a reminder that we live between the two advents of Jesus Christ, between the first advent of his birth over 2,000 years ago and the second advent of his return. Jesus has already come, but his work of restoring the world is not yet finished. And because it's not yet done, we live in this tension of the in-between times where things are still not fully the way that they're meant to be. As a result, Advent begins in the dark. Yet that's exactly where we need to start. Because without taking a fearless inventory of that darkness, the light of the world that we celebrate at Christmas doesn't shine as bright. That's what we find as we look to the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 64, beginning in verse 1. In your pew Bible in front of you, it starts on page 1,161 talking about a people who are returning to a city in ruin, whose temple was in ruin, people whose lives were in ruin. Isaiah comes to God with these words. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. So what do we see in here? First, maybe to our surprise, we see a God who hides. 
It's what we see in verse 7, where Isaiah says to God, you have hidden your face from us. Echoing the words from chapter 45, truly you are a God who hides himself. Echoing the words of the Psalms in Psalm 44, where the question is, why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? we find in Isaiah and elsewhere in scriptures is a God who at least in some way hides. But what does that actually mean? Well, to see the face of God is a figure of speech that they would use, meaning to see God reveal himself and his presence through his actions, through divine intervention, through revelation, through miracles, through events that demonstrate God's presence and involvement in our world. That's what Isaiah is crying out for in those first few verses. But to say that God has hidden his face is an expression of God's seeming absence or his inaction, particularly in the presence of suffering. As a result, Isaiah says that he and his people waste away. The suffering's gone on longer than expected, more intensely than they imagined, in ways they had never anticipated, and the effects were being felt. To borrow a phrase from earlier in his book, they were a people walking in darkness. People asking, where is God in the midst of the darkness of our suffering? The same question people ask today. See, Isaiah is addressing here the reality of ongoing suffering in this world, that this world of darkness, a reality that those who follow Jesus are not immune to, a reality we see when the breakup happens or when the job is lost, something we see when the marriage is on the rocks or when that rejection letter comes, when the miscarriage happens or when the relief that we've been longing for for so long still hasn't come. Each of these serve as a reminder of the words of Hebrews chapter 2, that even though Jesus has already come in his first advent, that until the return in his second advent, we do not yet see all things in subjection to Christ. As a result, there are times when God seems hidden to us hidden in the sense that we still see suffering in our world and in our lives. And yet, often that leads to feeling God is hidden in a different way. The times when God feels distant to us. The time when the Bible just seems like I'm reading words on a page. The times when it's hard to pray. Or maybe when I am crying out to God, but it feels like I'm just talking to myself. In the midst of it all, we can read words like those in Psalm 139. Words that assure us that there is no place that we're hidden from God's view, even in the dark and yet wonder why in our darkness he seems so hidden from our view. Jesus knew these kinds of times would come. Following Jesus does not exempt you from it. That's why Jesus says in John 16.33 and tells his disciples, in this world you will have troubles. And over the years I've, I've met people or I've heard about people that, that have said that the things in the Bible really were just made up. It's just one more of many ancient power plays to try to gather people to your group. Tell people nice stories that they want to believe and your new religion will grow like gangbusters. But if that was the case, apparently the authors of Scripture didn't get the memo. You see, you don't build your religion by promising suffering to those who follow its founder. And you especially don't invent those words and put them in the mouths of the founder himself. Unless it's true. Unless Jesus really said that, unless the goal in recording the things we find in Scripture is that we would actually know the truth, even the hard truths. You see, what we find in the Bible is actually a refreshing honesty in our overmarketed culture. 
Honesty about the hard things of life. It deals with real life, even things that are uncomfortable at times. It pulls no punches, not telling us to ignore the hard things, but actually showing us what it looks like to face them. That's what we see in Isaiah 64. It's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when the Apostle Paul talks about how he cried out to God about a thorn in his flesh, an ongoing cause for suffering, and three times he cried out and three times it was not removed. The Bible doesn't give simply overly simplistic answers to the challenging questions of life either. You see, while the Bible talks about how suffering can be brought about by someone's own sin, it also shows that that's not always the case. For example, the book of Job spends 42 chapters showing us that not all suffering is the result of a person's own sin. And yet in the midst of Job's suffering, God's seeming absence to him, his faith remained firm. In contrast, in Deuteronomy, it shows us the faith of the Israelites who'd escaped Egypt. Those who saw God perform miracle after miracle, their faith was the faith that wavered. Circumstances don't guarantee our response. Reality is more complicated than that, and the Bible tells it like it is. That's why Isaiah can write about how God seemingly hides in the darkness. It was Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher and and theologian and mathematician who wrote this. A religion which does not affirm that God hides himself is not true. And a religion which does not offer a reason is not illuminating. The reason is this. Jesus Christ has come, but he has not yet returned. That's why we can struggle in the midst of the darkness. That's why we still see suffering in our world. That's why we can struggle to see God. But Isaiah is showing us much more than that in this passage. You see, as a people living between the first and the second advent of Christ, he also shows us today what it means, what it looks like to wait on him. Look at verse 4. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, and no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That word translated there, wait, the Hebrew hakah, uh, has the sense of an attitude of earnest expectation, a, a confident hope. It's the opposite of running ahead of God or simply bailing out on him altogether. And yet this waiting is not passive, it's actually an active activity. So rather than just telling us what it looks like, Isaiah shows us what that looks like through his prayer. And in doing so, teaches us that waiting actually has a focus. Waiting has a direction. And before looking forward, at first, it looks back. You see this waiting, this attitude of expectation and hope first remembers. Remembers, remembering what God has done, how he has already acted before. Verse 3, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. You see, Isaiah's focus begins with the way that God has already shown his face and how he is still the same God today. Addressing him in verse 4 in the present tense, you who acts. Verse 5, you come to help. In the chapter before this, Isaiah has been writing about how God delivered his people from Egypt and then sustained them in the wilderness. And so when we come to the imagery in verses 1 through 3 of fire coming down and, and mountains trembling, we remind that that actually echoes what that generation first witnessed at Mount Sinai, a multi-sensory demonstration of God's power and his presence with his people. So Isaiah writes, As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, so he longs to see God's power revealed. 
and engineers learn to harness that power. The power of making fire, of fire making water to boil. They built these massive steam locomotives like the one I think we have a picture for you up here. This is the Frisco 1522 locomotive, now on permanent display at the Museum of Transportation just outside of St. Louis here. And that little blue thing that you can kind of see on the left-hand side, that's a six-foot-tall human being. I mean, this thing is, is massive. Its 3,600-horsepower steam engine was designed to handle the heavier trains traveling over the mountains between here and San Francisco. And many rail fans consider this to be the loudest steam locomotive in the world. You can just imagine sitting there peacefully on a hillside in the mountains of Colorado, eating your sandwiches, taking in the, the peaceful view when suddenly the ground begins to shake. The rocks begin to tremble. The trees start to shake off all of their leaves and their needles. And you see and hear coming roaring around the mountain 150 tons of steel and iron pulling behind it literally millions of pounds, announcing its presence in a way that cannot be ignored. All because inside of it, there's a fire causing water to boil and the mountains to shake. That's what Isaiah is calling out for, that type of revelation. When he says in verse 1 that he longs for God to rend the heavens and come down, he's calling for God to reveal himself by re revealing a power no less intense than that, knowing that he can because he already has. Thank you. Waiting on the Lord actually begins by taking an inventory of what he has already done, including in your own life. What it means recalling is how he first drew you to himself, how he's turned your affections to yourself, how he's shown himself faithful in the past, how he's turned your heart towards him, how he's granted you repentance, how he's brought forgiveness where it seemed hopeless, restoration and joy where you would least expect it happening. And then joining Isaiah in praising God, praying to him that God would visit you again in such a way, revealing himself with the same power that he's demonstrated before. Waiting in the darkness starts by looking back, remembering what God has already done. But it doesn't mean living in denial about the present. As Isaiah shows, it also entails remembering what's true about ourselves in our present state our circumstances, our situations in life. Not just looking back, but also looking out, looking around us. In verses 11, uh, 10 and 11, Isaiah talks about how their cities, uh, the temples, the places, the things they held sacred were now all in ruins. See, waiting in the darkness actually means being honest with God about what's going on in your life, even the hard things, and then crying out to God to act, to intervene, to show himself, just like we see Isaiah doing in those first few verses. See, waiting in the darkness means taking a fearless inventory of that darkness and then bringing that to God, no matter how big, no matter how small. Years ago, I was in a, a pretty tough place myself. Um, I'd been burning the candle at, at both ends, burning far more spiritual calories than I was taking in, and, and I was horrible at taking a day off. Like, Sabbath was like a foreign word for me. I didn't know how badly it was affecting me until I was paired up with somebody else who worked a similar ministry, and it was time for us to pray with each other. He told me what was going on in his life. I told him what was going on in my life. He prayed for me, and then it was my turn to pray for him. I couldn't. I couldn't open my mouth. 
minutes. Like my, my lips were frozen. I, I was so burned out, I couldn't even pray for somebody. And so he did what I couldn't. Put his arms around my weak shoulders and prayed the truth about me for me. Saying, Father, please help Keith. He has nothing left. He's empty. And he was right. Waiting in the darkness includes being honest with God about both your circumstances and how they've impacted you. It was a prayer that I'd never prayed, at least in part because I I didn't know that's where I was actually at, and also because I didn't know you could pray like that. But when my situation was finally put into words and prayed to God, it was like a catharsis I had never experienced before. Waiting in the darkness looks out. But it also looks within and acknowledges the truth before God. So we see Isaiah doing, beginning in verse 5, but maybe not the way that we would expect. You come down, we, we read there. You come down to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But, by contrast, when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You see, Isaiah is doing something radical in that prayer. You see, in looking at the suffering experienced by his people and the role that sin plays in that, he essentially says, we're not simply the victims, we're also the victimizers. Isaiah lumps himself with his people when he confesses, we continued to sin. See, to take a fearless inventory of the darkness means not only looking around us, but looking inside of us, into our own hearts, revealing the darkness that isn't just a problem out there, it's also a problem in here. It was while he was writing about the atrocities of of the gulags, those uh, communist Soviet forced labor camps, that the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this. If only there were just evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and all we had to do was separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the reality is the line dividing good and evil cuts right through the heart of every human being. Solzhenitsyn and Isaiah saw the same reality the darkness isn't just out there, it's also right in here. Isaiah uses this very vivid imagery in verse 6 to help us see the same truth. He, saw, he talks about a leper. When they hear about a, a leper, they talk about one who is unclean, which immediately would call to mind someone like a leper, uh, somebody who had had to go around everywhere announcing unclean, unclean, someone who's both infected as well as infectious, unable to approach God because of their uncleanness. And yet in this case, not because of their physical condition, do the people have a problem, but because of their moral and their spiritual condition. To drive the point home further, Isaiah compares all the seemingly righteous deeds of the people's acts to filthy rags. A kind of tamed-down translation, considering the original word is a reference to a used menstrual cloth. The same thought echoed in Ezekiel 36.17. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. A graphic way to say that even our seeming best actions by themselves before a truly holy God are disgusting. As a result of this, this spiritual condition, the temptation to sin sweeps us away like a dried leaf swept away by the wind. 
and a dead leaf no longer seeks connection to the tree. That's why we read in verse 7, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, confessing that through the darkness of our own sin, seeking God's face in the midst of our suffering is actually the last thing that we want to do. So why does Isaiah pray like this? Or could it be that he knows that when we see the effects of sin in our world and the suffering that it causes, he knows the temptation for us to become self-righteous, the temptation to assume a posture of arrogance towards others' sins and ignoring the darkness in our own hearts, a posture of pride. And yet forgetting the reality of our own sin makes suffering even worse for us. Worse because we believe that because of our relative goodness that we'll always believe that we deserve better than the suffering that we're in. And so instead, Isaiah calls to mind his own sin, their own sin, a reality that undermines pride and instead grants a posture of humility, which is the posture of waiting. And wait, What are we waiting for? What are we looking towards? Towards the final consummation of what Isaiah is talking about in verses 1 and 2, towards the second advent of Christ, towards the time when the one who came in that first advent and has gone away finally returns, towards the future that we see in Revelation chapter 21, where we read about God dwelling with his people, wiping away every tear, making all things new. You see, what Isaiah shows us in this prayer is that waiting in the darkness between that first and second advent of Jesus first looks back and remembers what God has done. It looks honestly around at one's own circumstances and even how they're affecting us and brings those things to God in prayer while also looking forward to Christ's return. And all of these things end up turning us towards God, towards his face. Each is an act of faith, declaring that we need his face more than his hand. We need his presence even more than his deliverance, even in the midst of suffering, even in the darkness. Some suffering God will push back in this life. Some he already has. Some not until Jesus returns. And because of our sin, when we cry out to God, we have no bargaining chip to use with him. We have no way to put God in our debt. We have no way to manipulate God's hands. Instead, the reality of our sin leaves us humbled before God. And yet Isaiah shows in his prayer something unusual in the midst of that, a confidence to come to God that looks up to him and cries out to him in the midst of it all, longing for him to visit them in spite of his own sin. That same Isaiah, who in chapter 6 cries out, Woe is me! I am ruined! I am unclean! In the midst of that darkness, the darkness of our own heart, Seeing God further convinces him of his own unworthiness before God. So how did Isaiah go from dreading God's presence because of his sin to confidently crying out for God to visit him and visit his people? How is it possible? How is it possible for anyone? Well, by remembering what's true about God. Not just what he has done, but who he is. Look in verse 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. The Father and the potter. Both fitting images because the life of a father and a child, an artist and their artwork are both inextricably bound with each other. He drives the point home further in verse 9. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. 
Both the father and the pot, both the father and the potter have a vested interest in that which they've brought into the world. You see this bold confidence to approach God in the midst of the darkness around us and the darkness that's inside of us. And not losing hope comes from remembering who God is. And then when that happens, we in turn remember who we are. His child. The one that he's molding and shaping for his purposes. And then we realize that the trials that we endure as we await Christ's return are often the catalyst that he uses to grow us, to form us, to shape us, to sanctify us, to purify us. It's actually part of how we get one step closer to the reality that we long for in Advent. Jesus making all things new, including ourselves. It's what I saw happening during maybe the roughest time of my life, my sophomore year of college. In less than one semester, I got to see everything else that I was delighting in taken away. Some of them permanently, some of them just for a season. And as somebody who still, it would take five more years to finally weep over my father's own death, someone so stoic as that, in that season, I wept every day. In the midst of it, I cried out to God to do whatever was necessary to take away the reason for my tears. And when I wasn't seeing it, I tried to manipulate the circumstances on my own, which, of course, never worked. And yet that season of darkness opened a door to delight in God and his word in ways that I'd never done before, in ways that started changing me inside and out. You see, what I realized in that season was the potter's hands were still on me, even in the darkness, molding me, shaping me, making me what he wanted of me, revealing sin that I wasn't even aware of, sin that undermined my ability to love my neighbor, to love my enemy, and to love my God preparing me for things I didn't even know were coming, uprooting the things that needed to be uprooted, and in time answering my cries in ways better than ever imagined. Ways that led to tears of joy at God's power and grace, revealing a light that would shine far brighter because of the darkness behind it. You see, the pursuit of God that I finally experienced in that moment in the midst of it all, actually echoes a story told by that pastor I shared about in the beginning. Decades ago, before his kids were grown, there was a favorite vacation spot that they would always go to. His kids loved to play with him, and the setting lent itself perfectly to games of hide-and-go-seek. Now, if you remember playing that, whether that was just a few days ago or a few decades ago, you know it is not a passive activity. You're darting this way and that. You're looking high, you're looking low. You are actively seeking to remove any obstacle to what you're trying to find. Engaging both your body and your mind with one singular goal in mind. And so it was with his children. You see, they knew their father's face and were now actively seeking to see it again. The reality is he would always be near them, even if out of sight. One place that he would often hide was such a good spot that even decades later when his kids were grown, they still didn't know where it was. And yet looking back, decades later, he reflected on a truth that transcends any game. Better than the better the hiding place, the more determined the children were to find him. And why? because he's their dad. Friends, that is why 
we wait. That is why we cry out, why we seek God's face, even when we cannot see, even in the darkness, not just because of what God has done or can do, but because of who he is as father and who we are as his children, as his prized creation. And the reason that we can cry out to God as father is because of someone who cried out to him that way first. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, experienced the ultimate darkness. There he experienced the ultimate consequence of sin and did so on behalf of all who would turn to him, who would turn away from trusting in their own filthy rags for, to make them right with God and instead trust in what he has done in their place. You see, while on that cross, he too cried out to God, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time ever, while he was absorbing the wrath of God for the sin of all who would trust in him, for the first time ever, he only heard silence. Which is why, whatever darkness we experience in this world, we can be confident that Jesus shares our grief and that he knows a greater grief than we do. You see, on the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate darkness of God's wrath so that you don't have to. And when he rose again from the grave, when he ascended to heaven, he showed us that the darkness is not the end. In his first advent, Jesus came out from the light and went into the darkness so that he can be himself the light in our darkness as we wait for his return. Reflecting on all of this, Mickey Anders writes this. Consider the absence that many parents feel when their college students leave home. Since this is our son Will's first year of college, we have often noted the sense of absence around our house. Even though he was always a rather quiet boy, the house seems somehow emptier, quieter. Daily we sense his absence. Every time we walk through the house, we see reminders of the one who is not yet back. But that absence is not a void. It is not as if he never existed. No, the absence has a specific shape. The shape of a beloved son who was away for a while but will be back home soon. His absence somehow makes us even more aware of him and how much we love him. Maybe we just took the boy for granted when he was about the house every day. But now we eagerly wait for his return. We count the days until Christmas. We constantly ask one another, what's Will doing now? How is Will? How long until Will comes home again? Do you see how the absence actually makes him present? He continues, surely something like that is true of our relationship with God. The hiddenness of God is not an empty void, not since Jesus came and showed us what God is really like. I love that verse from Colossians 1.15 that says that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus put a shape to the absence. Jesus offers a face to the hidden God. And when we sense that absence, we cannot help but focus on the shape, the presence. Friends, the hiddenness of God has a shape. The shape of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. That's the focus of Advent. The one whose first advent revealed most clearly what our God is like. The one who sits in the darkness with us as we wait, weeping with those who weep, and who will reveal himself again at his second advent when he comes to finally wipe away every last 
tears. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you as people who are living in darkness in many ways, the darkness that we see around us because of the sin of others and the suffering it causes, the darkness that we see inside of us in our own hearts, the the thing that makes us unclean before you, the thing that shows us that our only hope is that somebody could live the life that we couldn't have lived and died the death that our sins deserve to make us right, to make us clean, to bring us to you, Father, in the midst of our suffering. Remind us of the one who weeps with us, the one who will come again to make all things new, even us. Be to us in this Advent season the light in the darkness. Amen. Last year, we put out a Christmas appeal uh, for people to make a special offering beyond what they normally would, uh, and we will bring those offerings forward to the communion table the Sunday before Christmas, the 22nd, that fourth Sunday in Advent. Last year, uh, we raised $30,000 that way, which really put us in a really solid place going into the new year. This year, we're praying for 45000 So if you would prayerfully consider during this season whether God would have you give uh, a Christmas appeal uh, to the church, then uh, we're praying that God would provide for that to put us into the new year really on a solid footing, not stressed, not worried, and able to take care of our staff.